0: That's exactly what we've been talking about lately, last three weeks, trying to get back to basics of what the effect is about. What are the foundational principles that we stand on in this new space, as new people are are hopefully coming in and joining us? What are we about? What is it that we stand on? And of course, there's nothing more foundational that we stand on, that anything, anyone should stand on, than the Father's love. This notion that the love of the Father is absolute. In fact, it's not love in the way we typically think of love, but it's actually the default position of the universe, if you want to think of it that way. It, it is the ground of all being. It is the, the, the substance from which, the condition from which is probably better. Everything has come into being and everything is sustained. This is what Jesus was trying to get across to us. This is what Jesus was trying to teach. And we spent the last three weeks kind of looking at different aspects of this love because it is so big, it is so different than the love that we practice or what we can get our minds and even our hearts around, especially intellectually, that it just takes a while to steepen it. You know, a long time to steepen it. Before that notion really gets down deep someplace where we actually start to use it it starts to change the way that we make our decisions and the attitude with which we approach our relationships and life itself i cited some passages over the last few weeks that were bolstering and trying to illustrate how jesus would teach this love we use the prodigal son we use the The parable of the workers who came early and midday and late in the day and everybody got paid the same. So we tried to use some of those to to try to get this point across. But what about the other ones? See, This is the rub in Scripture, isn't it? There are those passages that seem to really support the notion of the Father's love and then there's those who just come in and just cut the knees right off, cut it off at the knees and, and undermine and seem to contradict. I want to take a look at a couple of those today. Because the way that we can reconcile this, the way that the scriptures are absolutely consistent in pointing to the Father's love and other things that we want to look at as well that we consider foundational, are only if we take that scripture and look at it through a Hebrew lens. When we take that scripture and put it back in its original context, back into a Hebrew worldview, the context historically and culturally, linguistically from which it came, You know, that's the way that everything starts to make sense, point in the same direction, and make perfect common sense as well. And so that is another foundation of the effect, that we are always going to look at Jesus, at the Gospels, at Scripture at large, from that point of view, because that's what illuminates. The Scriptures were written by ancient Eastern Hebrews to ancient Eastern Hebrews. It's incumbent upon us, You know, the onus is on us to come to their table, not the other way around. And so this is what we're trying to do always here. And so this basic approach, you know, maybe begs a little sidebar here. And it just, I wasn't intending to go here, but I had a a texting conversation with Steve over here last night. And he told me that a few days ago, his daughter and his uh, and her daughter's boyfriend asked him, you know, if... uh, how do they put it? If, uh, what's the difference between Judaism and Christianity, first of all? If Christ was a Jew, then why are we not Jews rather than Christians? Okay, so what's the difference between Judaism and Christianity? And if Jesus was a Jew, why are we not Jews? Why are we Christians? I think that's a pretty good idea, a pretty good question there. And I don't know if some of you have wondered the same thing. If we're going to talk about the necessity for us to step into Jewish shoes then why aren't we going all the way and just converting to Judaism? What is the difference between the two? I wanted to kind of just do this as quickly as possible, but I think it'll be a good foundation for us then looking at a few passages of Paul from a Hebrew point of view. You know, the first thing is, is that Judaism and Christianity are probably the two closest or, or most similar um, major world religions on the planet. And it's because they come from the same roots the three Abrahamic religions, the, great, the three great monotheistic religions, you know them, right? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they all come from the same roots. They all come as, as, a, as a shoot off of Abraham's faith. And so Abraham, no one really has a date for Abraham. Maybe it's around 2000 BCE, a second millennium. But Jesus comes on the scene in the first century, and he is still a very good Jew. In fact, he tells his people he is there for the lost sheep of Israel. And his ministry while he lives is exclusively for the Jews, but not completely. Because even though his mission is to the Jews, he comes into contact with all sorts of people, Gentiles and Samaritans. And he is completely non-exclusive when it comes to his love, when it comes to his reverence for their faith. He tells, he tells a centurion, a Roman centurion, he's amazed. He's never seen faith like this in all of Israel. He heals a Phoenician woman. He talks to a Samaritan woman and, and brings her into his table, so to speak. And so Jesus is moving within Judaism, and all his first followers are also Jewish. This is all in the first century. Seventh century comes along, and now Muhammad in the Arabian Peninsula he has his visions, and then he takes his religion off in another direction. So around 2000, first century, 7th century, CE, and we have these three religions coming out of the same root. But Judaism and Christianity have so so many things in common. Everything that we as Christians believe about the nature of God comes from Judaism. First, the fact that there is one God, and that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all all good, all loving, kind, compassionate. All those things we know about God comes from its Jewish roots. The ethics and the morality is usually called Judeo-Christian because it's of one piece. The ethics that we practice, in our, not only in our faith, but also in our country, our system of laws, all come from this Judeo-Christian ethics. They are the same. Both religions believe in an afterlife, but there are some differences here. Some differences start to show up. Whereas Christians have a focus on the afterlife, and they believe that this life is preparation for the next life, and Jews believe that too, but the Jewish focus is on this life to the exclusion, almost, of the next life. They believe that only this life can be known in any way that is useful. Whatever happens in the next life can't be known at all. It's God's domain, and if we just do what we're supposed to do here, that will take care of itself. And so the focus is all here. Jews don't believe in an everlasting hell. All of their terminology, at least, is pointing toward a temporary place of punishment, more like Catholic purgatory. Although they can believe whatever they want, and Jews are all over the place. They can believe in reincarnation, they can believe that the wicked just wink out of existence, and that only the good go on. There's all sorts of beliefs because there's no controlling authority. The Jews aren't interested in trying to set doctrine for the afterlife the way Christians do because their focus is all right here and all right now. And so the scriptures are also common, at least the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what they call the Tanakh, is is their body of scriptures, those are common to us. Jesus quoted so much of those scriptures that were then passed on in what we call the New Testament, which is our book. And so all of these things are common to us. Jesus, even though he was a good Jew for his entire life, he also was trying to break down the stranglehold of religion that, that the especially the Pharisees had put on the people. He was always trying to show that relationship was much more important than religious practice or adherence to the law. In fact, adherence to the law and religious practice was only there at all to serve the deepening of relationship, both with us and God, And with each other. And if it was no longer doing that, then it needed to be thrown out and burned with the fire, is the way that he would usually talk about it. His uh, confrontations with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, were always centered on these issues. Not that he didn't follow the law himself but that they would follow the law to such an extent that it would actually hurt the people. It would abuse the people. It would oppress the people. It would keep the people at arm's length from their God and dependent upon their religious lawyers. This Jesus was always trying to tear down, and he was always trying to show the people the correct role that religious practice and law had. I wanted to read you um, one passage that often gets overlooked, but it's so important and so foundational. It's at Mark 7, starting at verse 14. And he's, this is right after he just got reamed by the Pharisees because some of his followers didn't wash their hands before they ate bread. And that was part of the purity codes. Uh, of, of, the, of the Jews at the time. They had elaborate purity and, and cleansing rituals that they would do before they ate and when they came off various activities and some of, the Pharisee, some of the Jesus followers didn't do that. Out in the field, they just ate their bread. And so after he gets their complaints, he says, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. Do you know how controversial, how heretical that is? He's declaring all foods clean. Oh my gosh, kosher out the window? Are you kidding me? And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. This is a huge point that Jesus is making. Huge point. He's using the dietary laws here, especially the purity code here, especially to make a much larger point, just as he does with the Sabbath. He was always running around breaking the Sabbath oral tradition, not the Sabbath law, but the Sabbath oral tradition. And he would always say, you got to understand the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We don't exist here to follow these rules. These rules are here to help us get funneled into the presence of the Father to preserve life, to preserve the integrity of the group, to preserve relationships. And if it's no longer doing that, if these rules are now being used to break all that apart, then jettison Let them go. And I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to actually, you know, the mud in your eye thing. That's, That's exactly what he was doing. He was putting his finger right on that point. You know, the law doesn't save. The law doesn't, it's not some mechanism for God's sudden acceptance of us into heaven or that his love will now flow toward us. The law has nothing to do with that, is what Jesus is trying to say. Religious practice doesn't either. Bringing the hearts into focus, into unity, into connection with Father. That's what Jesus would call salvation. And it starts right here and right now. Because God has already done his part, hasn't he? He's already loved us from the beginning. We can only love because he first loved us. That's why that verse is so important to me and so important to us here. We have to understand God has withheld nothing. He has already given everything. All we need to do now is to come into that. How do we do that? Laws and religious practices can help us if we understand what they're doing, but not if we're following blindly. All religious practice either supports relationship with God and with each other, or we throw it out. And this sets a stage for Peter. Peter in the book of Acts, and if you remember, is at one point in... uh, what is that? Where am I supposed to go here? 2D. Peter in Acts 10, where he has the vision of a, like a sheet coming down that's tied at the corners, and there's all sorts of animals inside the sheet. And he looks up and he sees that they're all unclean animals, and a voice comes and says to him, Kill and eat. And he's, 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 he's you know, offended. You know, of course not. Just like when Jesus tries to wash his feet. Not me, Lord. I'm not going to let you do that. I would never eat these animals. He's being shown here. It's okay. These dietary principles are not the most important thing. There's something deeper than this. And of course, then that moves over to Paul. Paul was the one who actually moved and and focused a ministry on the Gentile population. Before Paul, everything was really focused on Jews for the most part. But here's Paul moving into the Greek world. And the first thing he does is hit and lock horns with the Judaizers, those who believed that if you were going to follow Jesus, you had to be a Jew first. This is the first great battle of the early church. It occupied the the first council at Jerusalem that Paul actually calls with the pillars of Jerusalem, as he calls them. And it was all dealing with whether you needed to be a Jew in order to follow Jesus. And the council says, no, you don't have to. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the dietary rules. You don't have to follow the the, the purity code. You can follow Jesus from a different point of view, from a different religious practice. Reading all the letters, especially Paul's letters, this issue is present in just about every single one of them. It was so important. And it kept coming back over and over and over again. So here is this, this difference between followers of Jesus who are Gentiles. Followers of Jesus who are Jewish. And the split gets more and more pronounced as time goes on. Eventually, the Gentile followers of Jesus make other changes. Since they are seeing Jesus as God's son, and this is the main differentiation between Judaism and Christianity, is the person of Jesus himself. Since Christians were understanding Jesus as the Messiah, and Jews do not, understanding him as the son of God, Jews see him as a prophet this is a major point that eventually led to the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And of course, Judaism is fiercely monotheistic, and so they would see the Trinity as three gods, even though that's not what we understand in Christianity. But that would be another major difference between the two that was sticking as time went on, Christians, Gentile Christians, started worshiping on the first day of the week rather than the seventh day of the week, so moved it from Saturday to Sunday because that was the day that the Lord was resurrected and other reasons. As soon as the worship day separated, there was no commonality anymore between Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus. You know, The party was really over by then, and there was no going back. And so we see this parting of the way that gradually happens over the first 100, 150 years after the crucifixion that cements in place differences doctrinally and and practically between Judaism and Christianity. And of course, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, then the rabbis had to reinvent Judaism instead of a temple and sacrifice based system. It now became a home and synagogue based system of mitzvah of good deeds rather than sacrifices. And so, again, there was so much change that was happening here. And Paul was at the forefront trying to get. Followers of Jesus understand they didn't have to keep following the law. You didn't have to keep going back and sacrificing something for every infraction. It was all covered under the once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So these are the changes that you start to see. Even though there's great commonality, there is still major distinction, mostly around the person of Jesus, who Jesus is, and how he functions in our lives. Now we hear at the effect even though we try to understand things in the most Hebrew way possible, because we believe that this brings clarity to the scriptures and to the doctrines that come from them. At the same time, we don't feel that you need to be Jewish in order to do this. Some people have often come up to me and say, why aren't you Jewish? Why aren't you following kosher? Why aren't you doing... Because we don't need to. I mean, the whole bent of what Jesus is trying to get across to us and Peter and Paul and the Jerusalem Council is that Following the way of Jesus is the critical piece. But that is a deeper, uh, more profound process that undercuts mere religious practice and religious belief. So we can take this way of Jesus, the only way to the Father that Jesus talks about, and we can practice it in a variety of religious denominations or religious practices because it undercuts there. This is what we're trying, Jesus is trying to get across. And this is why we believe that we, need, we don't need to be a Jew, but what we do need to do is to understand our scriptures and our Lord from a Jewish perspective. So how does this work? Well, let's take a look at Paul. In terms of talking about the Father's love, what we do need to do is protect that And that might sound strange to you. How do you protect the Father's love? I mean, the Father's love doesn't need any protecting. It is what it is, you know, and it's absolute and it's strong and it's all those things. What we need to do is protect our notion of it. We need to protect our understanding of it so that it doesn't get whittled away in scriptural passages or in life that seem to contradict something as different, as an unconditional love. So in terms of protecting this notion of God's love, we've got our work cut out for us when we look at Galatians 5. Let's look at Galatians 5, starting at verse 19. Okay, here's, here's Paul. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow, that's quite a laundry list, but he's not done. There's more all the time. Now here's a problem. If we understand the kingdom of God what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven, as heaven of the afterlife. And typically we do as Christians. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we're thinking heaven as opposed to hell. All right. So then this kingdom of God equals salvation, as we normally think of it, which is acceptance to heaven. Is that what he's talking about? Because look at this list, all right? Look at those behaviors. Are such behaviors as outbursts of anger, jealousy, envying, drunkenness, are those actually damnable offenses? If so, we're in a lot of trouble. And he's not done yet. Take a look at what he says at Romans one twenty nine, starting at 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death. Okay, gossips? Worthy of death, not going to inherit the kingdom, slanderers, arrogant, boastful, disobedient to parents. How many kids are going to be there in heaven with us, huh? You know, if this is what we're supposed to understand by these passages, we're all in a lot of trouble. And he's not done yet. It's like a Ronco commercial. Wait, there's more. First Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's included now several more. Thieves. But we know the thief on the cross. He didn't have time to repent. He didn't have time to make amends. He got to go to paradise. So what's, what's up going on there, you know? And now we got to look, what's this effeminate and, and homosexuals? I've really stepped into it here, haven't I? And what are we going to do with that? See, the words here aren't so clear-cut, even though they're translated for us into English. These are words that are difficult in Greek for translators to figure out. Because they don't mean something the way that they have been translated. And there's not a lot of precedent for these words in other places in Scripture so that they can cross-reference and, and see how they are used and see what they actually meant. We're just guessing here. From a distance of 2,000 years, you get a word, malakos, that means literally soft or fine, as in soft or fine cloth. That's literally what it means. But colloquially, it could mean also effeminate or soft as a man is is not, you know, real masculine, I suppose. It could mean that colloquially. Well, what does that have to do with a sin? What's going on here? And then the word that is used for homosexual is a word that literally means men lying on a couch together, is what it literally means if you put two words together. But obviously it has to do with, with probably sodomy or something. So... What was going on in Corinth? What was going on in Greek? What was going on in the Roman Empire at this time that Paul could possibly be referring to? One of them is pederasty. And especially in Greek, this was an institutionalized process where older men, especially rich older men, would take on young boys as surrogates. And so the young boy was sort of a passive partner and the man was an active partner. Effeminate and And the other word there, the soft and the other word, can refer to the passive and active parts of that particular institutionalized relationship, which was abusive. It was abusive to the child. Paul is looking at that and saying, that is not something that we should be supporting. That is not something that allows the kingdom to be established in a person's life. The Peshitta, the Aramaic Bible, translates that first word that has been translated as effeminate here, as molesters, we can certainly understand that. And the other word has been translated as male prostitutes, because there was a practice of temple prostitution, both heterosexual and homosexual, because men and women prostitutes would uh, dress up as various gods, and you would go into the temple, and you would have relations with these gods in order to get what you were looking for, and so on and so forth. What is Paul talking about here? What are the practices that Paul is talking about here that will keep you out of the kingdom and we haven't even defined that yet? We don't know for sure. It is difficult for us to try to draw hard and fast lines on these things when we don't know what the language is saying. But if you want to take it to a bottom line, I think Eugene Peterson does a masterful job as he translates this same passage in his message. And take a look. 1 Corinthians again, 6, 9 to 10. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. Does that make not perfect common sense? People who use and abuse persons, places, and things, use them for their own advantage without regard to the quality of the relationship, abuse each other in any way, shape, or form, and abuse the things of the earth. These are not people who are living in anything that resembles what Jesus is talking about kingdom. That's the qualifier. That's what Paul is trying to get across. However this language was originally intended, we may never know from this distance. But we do know that it was abusive or it was damaging to relationship because that, by definition, puts a person outside of kingdom. This is what we're trying to talk about here. But then we come back to the question, what is kingdom? We still haven't haven't deciphered that yet. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, first of all, is the same thing. Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven. Malkuta D'ashmaya, the kingdom of heaven. John, uh, Luke, and Mark all use kingdom of God. Malkutadalaha. Dalaha. Paul here uses Malkutadalaha, Dalaha, the kingdom of God. But Matthew was written to Hebrews. Hebrews didn't speak the name of their God for fear of, of abusing it, making it vain or whatever. And so... The polite way was to use a euphemism and heaven, Shemaiah, was one of the euphemisms for God. And so the kingdom of heaven is exactly the same as the kingdom of God. Jesus and Paul both used the word Malkutha. Malkutha does not mean the realm or the territory, the place of the kingdom. What it means is the principles by which the king rules. It is the reign or the rule of the king himself. And God means unity, means oneness, alaha, means multiple things functioning as one. And so literally, the kingdom of heaven is, or the kingdom of God, is the reign of unity, if we were trying to put it into English as clearly as we possibly can. But here's the most important thing to understand about the kingdom. It is a quality of life that we can experience, we can live here and now. When we are focused on the unity on the oneness on the connection with each other our behavior has nothing to do with god's love gosh that's so hard for us to hear and to and to get our arms around because it just it just tears at everything right our behavior has nothing to do with god's love for us it has nothing to do with god's acceptance of us but our behavior has everything to do with our ability to experience that love right now to realize that love right now to know that that love is actually ours we look at something as trivial as a gossip and and paul is saying a gossip can't stand in kingdom you know but think about a gossip think what the quality of the relationships of a person who gossips as soon as you hear a person gossiping about somebody else aren't you wondering what they're saying about you as soon as you walk out of earshot. The quality of the relationships are all damaged as soon as we gossip, as soon as we slander, as soon as we are given to outbursts of anger. All our relationships are damaged. As soon as we put that dividing line between us and another, between us and creation, between us and God's presence in the moment, we have exited kingdom. Kingdom is a quality of life. It's not a place that we enter. And it's certainly not a place that we enter sometime after death as Jesus is using the term right here, as Paul is using the term right here. All these laundry lists of Paul here are absolutely accurate in terms of keeping us out of the quality of life that Jesus calls the abundant life that he came here to give us. I came here to give you life, and life abundantly. can't do that when we're using and abusing each other in any way, even slightly, it's taking us out of that place, out of the pure freedom of what Jesus is understanding as kingdom. See, when we take a a difficult scripture like this and we put it back into this context, suddenly what happens is God's love is protected. This absolute love of God remains standing. We don't have to chip away at it. We don't have to try to wonder how it works over here but not over here, that it works in this saying of Jesus but not this saying over here. It is all consistent. After 25 years of doing this, I have never taken a difficult or a seemingly contradictory passage in English and translated it back into Aramaic and seen it go any other way but absolutely bringing me right back to the feet of the Father's love. And I never expect to, because if our scriptures are true, then they are consistent, consistently true in these bedrock principles that Jesus is trying to get across. And so here's how we can think Jewish without being Jewish. And that's what we're trying to do here. You know, in in closing, I wanted to read. This is a journal entry uh, of mine from. Almost exactly 23 years ago, it's dated Wednesday, March 3rd, 1994, at 11.35 a.m., M-I-C-D-O or what? And if you don't know what C-D-O is, it's like uh, O-C-D, only all the letters are in alphabetical order, as they should be. Okay. Yeah, I wrote this, actually, I wrote this almost exactly three weeks before Marion and I were married, and... Um, I don't know, I read it last night and and it just, shut up and read. I have begun working with a client, a psychologist who is very Eastern in her thought and spirituality. She comes at a time in my life as I grow more dissatisfied with the practice of Christianity, with the way it is practiced here in Orange County, in California, with the closed-mindedness, legalism, contradictions, hypocrisies, absurdities. She comes at a time when Merton and Augustine have been breaking down great, open, airy places in my heart. Places where I've come to realize that although the words are clear, who you are, Lord, is not. Who are you really? The I am? What does that mean? The eternal self-existence. What is that? There are no words for you. There aren't even any thoughts for you that can be entertained directly in our minds. We can't look you in the face. We approach obliquely. We know you only through the glass darkly. I know why most Christians, most people stop at such a superficial level. How do you deal with that which is beneath language, beneath rational thought, outside of physics? The word is clear. Stick to that. Order your life around it. Cling to the salvation promise by clinging to the letter of the word, thereby circumventing any deeper questions. And none of this is wrong unless it leads to the certainty of self-righteousness. But it is incomplete. How complete can our relationship with you be in this life, Lord? I don't know. But certainly more than I generally see around me. And again, I see that you are nothing I have imagined. Nothing I can imagine. But I have to keep trying to understand This woman comes to me at this time of questioning when I'm pulling on myself in the midst of turmoil and says that Christianity won't be able to contain me very long, that I will advance beyond it. And I ask rhetorically how Christianity is being defined. Because I've already outgrown, or better, moved past the superficiality that abounds in media and literature as the fullest expression of my personal faith, Catholicism, stripped of its government and catechism, beckons with its deep and ancient mystical roots. Zen beckons as a pure attempt to approach truth by eliminating all that is untrue. And flailing away at all of this, I've been steadily giving ground until I am backed flat against the wall of my absolutes. But with these words, these questions, I feel that wall giving away also. Open, opening me up to 360 degrees of confrontation or freedom. What do I believe? Who do I believe right now that you are, Lord? In the absence of full understanding, I have to take a stand. I must have a point from which to strike out into deeper relationship. I believe that you are love, Father. I believe you when you said you never leave or forsake. I drive a stake in the ground at the point of your love, your love that can't be altered or attenuated by you or anything I or anyone else can do or fail to do. And revolving around that stake like an orbit of ever-widening circles, I'll interpret everything I encounter in the light of your love and not the other way around. Whether considering your word, the scriptures that comprise our Bible, a personal tragedy, the world's cruelty, or a friend's requests, I'll negotiate as best I can with one hand grasping that stake. To let go of your love as a center of all gravity is to hopelessly lose my way. This is a stand I can take, and from it flows a direction, a walk. I still don't know who you are, Lord. You are a moving target full of surprises. Your revelations come from the most unexpected places. Your truth permeates all corners of the universe, all walks of life, all philosophies, religions, codes. But it is here I find you most fully, with my back against the solidity of your promise. In my weakness, I pray for your indulgence and guidance. And I pray you will never allow me to become so lazy comfortable, smug, or complacent as to fail to recognize your truth wherever I find it or to tear away at the structures I have built in my mind and life when it becomes obvious they can no longer contain the God you have revealed yourself to be. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, you're too big for us. Gosh, we cannot hold you in our minds. We can't even hold you in our hearts. We keep looking for edges to grasp onto and then we limit you in ways that were never intended. Help us to just let go. Help us to just move into this place of pure experience where you can be exactly who you are and we can be exactly who we are. And know what that means, maybe for the first time. Your love is too big. Don't let us limit it because we're hurt or because we think we're being led into error and we get afraid. Help us just to press forward step by step and allow you to be in our lives who you really are. That's the God that we need. That's the God that we want, Father. You at your fullest, So again, give us the desire, give us the courage, give us the perseverance to keep walking and to keep experiencing who you really are. And all along the way, to only be grateful for the opportunity and for every gift that you've given us to bring us back to yourself. We love you, Father, and we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.